0: Welcome to the Freedom to Learn podcast exploring freedom, autonomy and social justice in education. This recording was made at the 2020 Freedom to Learn online forum.
1: Hello, this is Olive Hickmott. I have produced this Freedom to be exceptional video for visual learners, especially for the Freedom to Learn conference. I've been working for 18 years with Hundreds and thousands of exceptional children and a few adults. Helping them to learn in a way that isn't really mentioned in school, that's visually. When you say visual learning to school teachers, they think visual teaching because that's what they've been trained to do, teach visually. Multisensory teaching and learning is a given in school, but without training in how creative children learn visually, Students can't use their strengths to be exceptional. I'm going to cover 11 secrets that nobody tells you. Have you noticed how children are growing up and coming into education system with more creative and imaginative minds fueled by the amount of visual stimulation? Have you ever noticed adults who think differently? Maybe you're married to one of them. Well, I'd like you to meet my friend, Freddie, who appears in lots of my presentations. What is Freddie good at? When I ask parents what Freddie's good at, sometimes they don't know, which is a great shame because Freddie's probably causing so much chaos that actually they haven't got time to think what he's good at. Then what does Freddie think of his experience? Does he appreciate his strengths? Well, some people do. Most people don't. For example, the child who could look at an ordnance survey map and look at those contour lines around mountains and see them poked up in 3D rather than 2D never thought he'd got any particular skill that other people hadn't got. Then there's the teacher's experience. I teach this way, and this is what the national curriculum instructs me to do, so I can't do anything else. So then let's have a look at what they are exceptional at and what they do well. This is the first secret to get to the bottom of. Are they really good at Lego and they don't even need the instructions? Are they really creative? Are they great problem solvers? Um, can they do colour matching so they'll see one colour in the morning and they'll see another colour in the afternoon and they can tell you whether they actually match? Remarkable skill. Um, Are they good at drawing? Are they good at memory so they can remember things? Can they redesign their bedroom in their heads and work out what what colour wallpaper and what colour paints and what colour carpet they'd like? And there's loads of exceptional skills in sport. And, of course, there's the person who is a great jigsaw puzzler. Thomas West produced a book a few years ago called Seeing What Others Cannot See and that's a remarkable book and it's exactly that. I tend to see what other people don't see. Let's pop back to early childhood for a minute. When you first see an infant smile at you, you can be sure they've got the mental images of you. If you put on a pink curly wig they would probably cry and please don't try that one. A little later in the playground they can recognise their friends. And let's hope they can recognize their own mum and dad. So what's the underlying skill? The underlying skill behind all these superpowers is visual learning. Now I need to pop into the second secret, into some of the diagnosis of learning differences, because against each diagnosis, there is an unrecognized mental imagery symptom. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. So let me pick out a few for you from the whole range of learning differences that can be influenced by mental imagery. Dyslexics have not progressed from phonics to developing the skill to picture words, which is needed and essential for word recognition. Those with ADHD have mental images that run at high speed sequence from A, B, C, D, E, causing several distractions because you're still talking about A and they're talking about D. Those on the autistic spectrum can withdraw as they seem to be drowning in mental images without any control. Here comes the third secret. Start making friends with your mental imagery. According to NASA, everybody is born as a creative genius and they have mapped how people lose their creativity as they get older. And Sir Ken Robinson has also been into this area. Teach your child how to make the best friends they can with their mental images. It can be great fun. Every single child I have met in the last 18 years, and there have been thousands, have been creative and have massive strengths in mental imagery. So there you have Tom Daly on the 10-meter board who has rehearsed his dive thousands and thousands of times in mental imagery. When you go to the hairdressers, do you expect them to know what your hair is going to look like before they start snipping it off? I hope they do. Two little girls who are making a pizza there, they have got, they know exactly what that pizza is going to look like by the time it comes out of the oven. And then we've got the pole vaulter, which is a really complicated sport and needs a lot of mental rehearsal to get it right and get you over the pole. And then, of course, there's football. If you picture the football hitting the back of the net, you're more likely to score a goal. Useful tip there. The flip side of such powers is that students do not know how best to use them because they're not trained for other things, say words, numbers, and not to get overwhelmed by them. So to make friends with your mental imagery, what you do is watch somebody's eyes. As children grow up, you will notice their mental images time and time again when you look closely, because when they're looking up, they're accessing their mental images. Can I ask you to picture an object that you're very familiar with, for example, an apple? Notice what it looks like. There is no right and wrong to this, there's lots of different varieties, it's your apple. See if you can describe it to other people. Then perhaps picture an elephant and explain what your elephant looks like, which might be grey or might be rainbow stripe doing ninja dancing. It's your pictures, they are right. Everyone needs to become comfortable with their own images and not be overwhelmed by them or frightened. Your images can be different. Some people, they can do really good at past events. Some people are really creative and imaginative, and those will be future pictures. Some pictures are as, like just like a colour TV. Some are black and white. Some are cartoons, or people just know what things look like. You can check out what the size of things are, what the texture of them is. And if you can't control your em- mental images, just wait for a moment to the next slide. Euroscience tells us that all these images hang out in our occipital lobe. Try moving onto a few animals and see if they're still or they're moving. All secret coming up. Controlling your mental images, this is absolutely essential for everybody. This is what lack of control of mental images looks like. That poor chap there who's absolutely overloaded, and some people would call that sensory overload, with so much chaos going on in his head. So to get pictures under control, start slow, gentle breathing in and out through your nose. Say in for the count of four and out for the count of four. Breathe right down into your belly. So your belly goes out as you breathe in and your belly goes in as you breathe out. And keep breathing while I talk and explain a little more. There are millions of people who are over-breathing through their mouths worldwide, which is bad for all manner of health challenges. And in the USA, they reckon 70% of people diagnosed with ADHD are mouth breathers. Mouth breathing increases stress, avoids vital nasal functions, and reduces your carbon dioxide, which restricts oxygenation into every cell of your body, including your brain. And if you've been breathing for a few minutes while I've been saying that, notice how it relaxes you and reduces your anxiety. Now I want to teach you how to get grounded. Having created relaxed gentle breathing, imagine you can ground through your feet or the base of your spine to enable you to feel solidly connected to the earth and natural gravity. With just a little practice you'll be able to control your mental imagery. You'll be able to select one picture at a time or more at will. Now let's look at mental imagery and how that can help with reading and spelling. Firstly, how to improve your handwriting. Copy down the line that's on the screen there, which says improve your writing. Just notice how long it took you, whether you had to do one letter at a time or whether you were quite quick, and notice the quality of your writing. Now copy down, here is a secret. You can copy down that in exactly the same font that it's written in on the screen. But what I want you to do now is not to look at the paper. So you, can copy. you want to keep your eyes on the screen. Don't look down at the paper and just copy what you see. I can assure you, you're going to be able to do this. If you copy what you see, your writing will speed up. Because you won't be looking up and down at the paper. If you copy carefully, it will improve your handwriting too. So now we're going to go on to reading 6, 7 and 8 secrets, 3 secrets all on one page. This can be really fun. Now you've got control over your pictures, you can use them for words. First try to read a paragraph of any information that you've got. Notice how many words you recognise and which you have to break down into phonics and blend back again. The words you recognise are already in your brain's word form area. Congratulations! Every child should realise the words that they're recognising they've already got in their head. Number seven is now notice where the, where the information you're reading from is. Try raising it up a little higher. Does your reading improve? This isn't magic, but it's a function of your eye position to keep you out of those negative emotions that you naturally access when you're looking down. Find anything you are motivated to read. Just read to yourself with the book propped up or the magazine until you can create some confidence and feel free to ask words you don't understand. Don't read aloud yet. That just creates performance anxiety and should be left off. You're really confident. Comprehension. Comprehension is when you're asked questions about a passage you've read. So when you're reading a passage, just create pictures for comprehension later. So you can just run through the pictures and remember the answers. If you're struggling to read, go to spelling, where you have some, we have some neat tricks for developing word recognition, and you can come back here later. Spelling, the ninth, ninth secret, and probably one of the most important because quite often people can read well but they can't spell very well. If you try something like Look, Cover, Write, do notice the subtle differences that make all the difference in what I am explaining and today is only a very short resume of our skills. Visualising words is an essential skill for literacy. Those who are good at literacy picture words in their mind's eye, in their mental images. English has a deep orthographic depth, which means that phonics doesn't work very well. So relax, picture a dog or a cat if you prefer, tell the image to keep still, no tail wagging, write the word dog on a post-it, hold it in front between the person and and ask them to transfer the word onto their dog. So you've now got dog with the the word dog written along the side of it. Spell it forwards and then spell it in reverse order. So let's do a bit of practice with Teddy there. Teddy's got words stuck all over him. He's got ear on his ear, nose on his nose, and foot on his foot. And so try practicing with your Teddy and stick some post-its on him notice that they are all noun words so they're all related to objects which is the place to start because it's much easier you can move on to non noun words later you can use capitals or lowercase whatever the student likes use picture words to start with because this is a step by step process and you need to put the and you need to put the word in the picture you can practice with longer words always going from building on success and hence growing your confidence. Everyone can do this with just a bit of practice. Then copy down from your mental images to paper without looking at the paper, just like we were doing earlier. Picturing words creates word recognition and fluent reading. You only need phonics for new words. Have fun practicing. There's Teddy. Those of you who like research and neuroscience, you can look at this picture. There's the occipital lobe I mentioned earlier. There are your eyes at the front of your brain over there. Words come into the front of your brain. If you're using phonics, they go up to the top of your brain, and these two parts of your brain negotiate what the word means. And what should happen is that once you've seen a word once or twice, it goes down into this star here, which is called the word form area. So the next time you want to read it, you go through the express pathway straight to the star. And if you want to spell the same word, you can access how it's spelt from the word form area. This is a bit of fun for you, which you may have seen before, so don't ignore it because it looks like a very weird analogy bridge, but you will be able to do it if you sit back, relax, and don't panic, just relax. Breathe in through your nose and out through your nose, gently. And I'll read it for you, but you can try it yourself later. I couldn't believe that I could actually understand what I was reading. The phenomenal power of the human mind, according to a research team at Cambridge University, it doesn't matter in what order the letters in the word are. The only important thing is that the first and the last letter be in the right place. The rest can be total mess, and you can still read it without a problem. This is because the human mind does not read every letter by itself, but the word as a whole. Such a condition is appropriately called typoglycemia. Amazing, hey? Yeah, and you always thought spelling was important. Thanks to Cambridge University for giving us another perspective on how we actually process information. And let's take a quick trip into maths, because maths can terrify people. But again, to do maths successfully, you need to visualise numbers. So instead of that poor lad at the beginning there, who is overwhelmed by numbers and it's all total gibberish, you need to get relaxed, get grounded, as that little chap in the middle there is, and sort out these numbers so that you can actually visualise numbers. And the twelfth and last secret for you that I'm going to tell you about is times tables. Because times tables are so useful. And if you've been struggling with times tables and remembering them, firstly, imagine a triangle, put a 7 and a 2 at the bottom and a 14 at the top. That means 7 times 2 is 14, and 2 times 7 is 14. So the great news is you've only got to learn half of them. The next thing is 14 divided by 2 is 7, and 14 divided by 7 is 2. So, lo and behold, you can start division. Isn't that easy? Now, what else can you use mental imagery for? There's dozens of secrets you know about that you can use your mental imagery for. And you may not have realised that's how you're doing something. Memory, revision. Um, Schools quite often teach you how to do mind maps, but have they ever taught you to take a picture in your brain of the mind map? So a good trick is to stick them up on the wall at home above eye level and then you'll find it easier to remember them. All sorts of academic skills building design, shop window design, rearranging your bedroom, remembering dance routines, remembering your way home. These are all visual skills that are so easy to learn for highly visual creative people. So is there anything you could do to help? I believe there is a really big issue here that we need to address. It's a child's right to know about the power of visual learning and be helped to learn in a way that works best for their highly visual skills and highly visual brains. Multisensory teaching and learning is a given in education, but visual learning isn't talked about. Every child is different, and schools teach them as if they're all the same. There are thousands of highly talented children who struggle in school for no fault of their own, I've been teaching parents and their kids for these simple skills for 18 years. This is home education because this isn't being taught on the school curriculum. I was dyslexic for 50 years until I learned to spell and read. And now I enjoy what's left of my dyslexia and ADHD. This is how to contact me if you don't mind me telling you. Um, there's my website, which has got resources and training courses and masterclasses on there, there's lots of mini videos on YouTube that i done during lockdown on my channel, Olive Hickmott, and there is my blog which is on the side of my website called olivehickmott.co.uk, and you can find me through Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter. There's a picture of my three books, and the elephant in the classroom is my latest baby, So you can learn the skills for you and your child through coaching from my network of practitioners. And you can come and learn the skills for yourself and to teach other people. In fact, about I think more than 50 percent of the people I have taught have been parents. And I really would recommend it. It's a fascinating area I've given you. I've given you a short introduction to now, and you'll find many more interesting things to hold your attention. Thank you for listening. So welcome back, everybody. Um, uh, I'll just give you a few moments to digest what I've just been saying there, and perhaps you would like to ask some questions. I managed to fail on I couldn't see the group chat, So I'm really sorry. I haven't picked up on people's questions and answered them. Um, And so why don't you just put your hand up if you want to ask a question or make a comment or just speak to me uh, and then unmute yourself. Right, Sarah, go for it. Do you think
2: for visual learners then um, a kind of... is practical um, outdoors in contact with with nature in contact with the elements basically um, would be more um, would be would be better basically but it would be better for any for everyone every I, child. Think
1: it, I was about to say that, so It'll be better for everyone. Definitely,
2: but would it be for them particularly advantageous then to to be? Comp- to connect the mental image with the practical skill straight away, let's say the scissors, you use the scissors, you learn how to spell scissors because you are using the scissors and you see them often. Um, yeah, all this connection with or sewing because you you have a needle and and then you connect what you're doing, what you're making with the writing and the reading and yeah. Yeah,
1: and also the one thing I will tell you, Sarah, is that, that I absolutely know is that when I was talking about breathing and grounding, grounding is so much easier to do when you're out in nature. And to keep mental imagery under control, you need to be grounded. I mean, people who are not grounded can have the most amazing mental imagery that's flying around all over the place, but if they want to concentrate on doing something in particular, that's a nightmare and but what they want to do what it's one of those things that through grounding you can choose whether you've got mental images flying around or whether you're focused
2: interesting yes when you say grounding do you mean as well like walking barefoot being apart from the breathing that you mentioned which i can see um, it's it's very good um, but as well like being in contact with the ground, with your
1: feet. What I do, what I do if a child's standing in front of me, Teddy, you're going to do this, he's done it before, is I give him a little, I put one hand behind the child and one hand in front and give him a little push and check if they're wobbly. And then I explain to them that you're a little bit wobbly, aren't you? So to stop being wobbly, think down into your feet Get yourself some imaginary roots that go down into the ground, might go right down to the center of the earth, and then spread them right out so that however hard I push you, you're not going anywhere. And it normally works. So get them breathing first of all through their nose, and then get them grounded and they'll get these pictures under control. It's so important for anybody who is a bit ADHD or or ASD. That they can actually feel firmly connected to the ground. They don't have to be there all the time, but if they want to concentrate on something, they really need to be. Okay?
2: Great. Yeah, so yoga and meditation should be in every school,
1: in every education. The only problem about yoga and meditation is it takes quite a long time, and the kids can get bored. Grounding somebody takes us the same length of time I just did with grounding my teddy. It's really instant. And what you want to do is give the child a skill that
3: wherever they are, they can like click their fingers and they can get themselves grounded. So you're giving them the skill rather than doing meditation or yoga, which you're
1: um, they, they sort of are out of the classroom for or whatever. I, by the way, I should say yoga and meditation absolutely great. It's just that
3: you, if a child gets ungrounded, they need to be able to ground themselves quickly. Any more questions? I can't believe you haven't got some questions. Go on, Abby. It mostly comes from a sense of of overwhelm. I think there's a lot that you've shared with us that I need to take away and think about, and then I'll come up with my questions in a couple of hours. You know, um, <laughs> as is always the way. Unfortunately, I um I'd love if if you I I you bring a lot of different things and a lot of different sources together, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about about the process that you've been through in terms of kind of developing what feels like quite a comprehensive. Oh,
1: Oh, I've been asked that one for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. How many hours have you got, Abby? Um, <laughs> uh, I, do you know what NLP is? Neurolinguistic programming. I went on an NLP course 20 years ago and it's 15 minutes on an NLP course. Um, I learned how to visualize words, and I couldn't do it, <laughs> I just couldn't. At coffee break, I went around my friends, and this was an in-person course, and there was about 200 people in the room, and I went, can you do this? How the hell are you meant to do this? And I really hadn't got a clue, I, because I had never visualized a word in my life. By the way, I have a maths degree, so I visualized numbers my whole life, but I never thought of visualizing a word. Wasn't I couldn't do it? I just never thought of it. So that was Saturday. On Monday morning, I knew the deputy head teacher at um, the local special needs school. And so I went up and saw him. And I said, I think I've just learned something that might be useful. Have you got any kids that can't spell? And he went, "Uh, we've got several hundred. Which ones do you want? And I went, oh, okay, Um, I'll just have one at a time. Thank you very much. And so I started teaching them this. And these kids were very dyslexic. And they'd got letters flying all over the place. They'd got no letters. They'd got, when I asked one kid to visualize a fireplace, he could only do it at 90 degrees. He couldn't get it the right way up. Can you imagine how confused you must be in life if everything you think of in your head is at 90 degrees. Anyway, I worked with all these kids, and um, I was absolutely gobsmacked, to be honest, about how quickly they could change. So we went from a child with no letter sense. This is secondary school, so they're 11-year-olds. We went from a kid with no letter sense at all to he could spell yogurt in... I think that was four weeks of 15 minutes a week. He could spell yoghurt forwards and backwards. And I've been told by the um, head of English that you won't be able to do anything with him because he's got a brain tumour. And every time we teach him something, it moves. And I went, gosh, I'm I'm really bad. I have to say about this. I went, gosh, that's interesting. I wonder how he does that. And so... I think at this point she was slightly giving up on me. But we taught this kid to do literacy. He could spell and he could read. And I bumped into him just before he left school in the summer term. And I said, are you still using that thing I taught you? And he went, by this time, he's a respectable-looking 16-year-old. And rather than looking a wreck, which is when I met him, and he said, do you think I'm not? And um, I went, no, I think you are. So that was how I got into it. Then I started. Um, so then I started teaching loads and loads of people who were um, either just poor literacy or dyslexic. And then I started training people to do it, so that the network spread all over the world. As I started training
3: people online, and then um, uh, a number of people. Um,
1: some of the people I trained became really active in it. Some people learn it just for their own kids. Some people learn it for to teach in school. So it's gone all over the place. And to be quite honest, I don't know where it's gone to most of the time. And um, then I and all the time, I'm really curious, and my brain is like a permanent jigsaw puzzle. It's all the time putting bits together. And so I I stumbled over grounding which um, was essential to keep these mental images under control. A year ago, I stumbled over nose breathing, which is a really important skill. You ought to tell everybody you know about nose breathing, especially with COVID around, nose breathing is a healthier way to breathe than mouth breathing. And so, and then I started getting into ADHD and autism. But only from the point of view of, I suppose, the things I work with, the, the five things that in the elephants in the classroom you'll see um, I, I work with, really, is one is panic, anxiety, trauma, and breathing and grounding helps There, no end. One is looking at children's strengths. And from the, for that, I collected together some of the work, work of Temple Grandin who you probably all know is a famous autistic lady in the US who is a university professor and highly um, autistic. And she has a book called Thinking in Pictures. And that's when I realized that autistic people think in amazing pictures, but most of the time they're not under control uh, because they're anxious. And so getting pictures under control – And then work. And basically, what I've done with you today is the bits and pieces I've put together and made something completely different. And so, when I talk to somebody about ADHD, and I'm just running through at the moment a course on ADHD, which is really normal, as in the party line, I don't do any of that stuff. I do mental imagery,
3: grounding, breathing, and then see what happens next. Does that answer your question, Abby? Yeah, thank you. But really anybody good. can
1: do what I do. Just be curious. That's all okay. That's all I was.
3: Thank you. Anyone else? Um, nobody else? I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a question. Why isn't this taught in school? Anybody know the answer? Time. Time? Time perhaps, you know, one teacher, 30
2: students, you can't, you know, and and not knowing, not having the knowledge enough, because as you said, curiosity. If you're a teacher, you're, you're being taught a certain curriculum in order to be able to go through the school and then teach it. So some teachers, unless they're coming with their own background and own knowledge, don't have it to implement.
1: Okay. Anybody else got any views? Hola. Yeah, I think
0: that um, because I met somebody in alternative school, the the children, which was not happy there, and um, they said something like they have to go there, like they have no choice to not. So it's something that they have to do. Yeah. Okay.
1: okay. Any other ideas? Amy looks as if she's going to <laughs> pressing the button. Yes, go on. Well, I was thinking if if there are any research out there like that puts figures on this, so people can see the benefit with a bit of research, because that might help it. The research goes back to 1950. It's astounding. There was people visualizing words for spelling back in the 1950s, and, but it's not being taken up by school. The, I'll tell you the even more ridiculous thing is that the national, well, the national curriculum and anything about school, have you heard the expression multi-sensory teaching and learning? That's well-known expression, but part of that is visual learning. So there's visual teaching and there's visual learning, and they are two separate things. And the, I think we're setting our teachers up for failure because the, the paradigm is that the schools have multi-sensory teaching and learning, but the only problem is we're not teaching the teachers how children learn visually. And they, that can be really confusing for a child. Um, I'll also respond to your question about time. When I, I totally appreciate that 30 kids in a class and there's no time to do very much, once you've understood how visual learning works, the um it's much, much quicker because if you think of a child who's learning words phonically, phonics are needed for new words, but if you think of them dividing um dividing down a word into phonics and then blending it back again, after they've seen that a couple of times, they ought to recognise it. And every school teacher knows that they're heading for word recognition. They don't want these kids to be stuck in phonics forever. And this really speeds up how you can move them on to word recognition. And in my opinion, this should be taught in reception year, year one, in parallel to phonics. Because the last stage of phonics should be word recognition. But if you get stuck in phonics only, which is what the government says with a big only, that four-letter word, phonics only, then they will be stuck there. And some kids that are confused by phonics, and we all know that some kids just can't, can't do phonics, they can't move on to word recognition. They get stuck. And that's when you also get the kids who... Phonics has worked for and they've moved on to world recognition, but they can't spell what they can read. I have a lovely uh, had a lovely time with one little lad who brought in a um David William's book and um he read me a whole page out of it. He could read absolutely magic. And I said, What's your spelling like? And he went, rubbish. I said, You've got, I explained to him that he would got all those words he just read, he'd already got in his word form area. So they were sitting there in his brain. All he got to do was to find them in order to spell. And he, his face just lit up. Do you think I can do that? And I went, yes, you've
3: already done half the job. You just want to get hold of the other half. And the other thing about it is that it's
1: demonstrable in minutes. Um, I'm talking in September at the London Dyslexia Association or something or other. And I was online to um, the organizer or one of the organizers, and I literally taught her how to start doing it in five minutes, 10 minutes. And she was absolutely amazed. The question is, Nobody tells you that good spellers. How many good spellers have we got on the line? Anybody who's good at literacy? Right, Sarah, you're good at literacy. Oh, you've got about four of you. Okay. Okay.
3: When you go to spell a word like giraffe, can you see it? How many R's and how many F's? Got it? Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know who answered that
1: one, but Sarah did. Yes. How many R's and how many F's, Sarah? One R and two F's. Great. And you can see it. You mean the word or the giraffe? Well, you can probably do both, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I can see it, yes. You can see the word, okay? Yes. So this is the skill that people who are good at literacy are already doing. But the people who are good at literacy, I'm
3: sorry to say, you don't, have you ever told anybody else that that's how you can spell? Sarah? Abby? N- no, I, 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 I didn't know. <laughs> I thought it was, yeah.
1: I that's know. how you do it. Mm. When you're good at it. I will tell them now. <laughs> you will tell them. I once said to the chief educational psychologist um, in Hertfordshire, that um, I said, why don't you tell every teach? Why don't you tell every parent in Hertfordshire, because that's where I live um, that good spellers see words. I said this is a fact. You know, I've just done a quick straw poll with three of you. You can all see words that are good at literacy. And so she then started muttering about, oh, there's different ways of doing literacy and there's different ways of spelling and for different sorts of words and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And I said, but they've Um, This is what people do and why don't you just tell the parents that that's what they're aiming to do. They can go through phonics, that's fine, but they need to
3: land on word recognition and be able to see words. They don't want to be stuck in phonics for life. Yes, Denizel, you're mute. You need to unmute yourself. Right, yes. Uh, could you just give uh, some experience on kids who are bilingual or trilingual in terms of spelling? Which languages have you got? I've got Spanish. I've got Brazilian Portuguese. I've got uh, Italian. Right, I can tell you about Italian
1: and, and Spanish. Can't, don't know about Portuguese. Um, the ink, there is a, there is a chart I have in my training, which is that we have a deep orthographic depth. You may not know what that means. That means the gap between what it sounds like and what we write is huge in English. It's not a lot better in French. Then at the other end of the scale, when you get to Spanish and in particular Italian, Italian is an exemplar language phonetically. So exactly what you hear is what you write down. I don't speak Italian but this is what I've read the chart
3: Mm.
1: okay so you can do everything phonetically in Italian um, but in English it doesn't work it's very limited I mean if you wanted to spell phone you spell it F O N E in English phonetically does that make sense now, the great thing about visualizing words is you can do it in any language. How many languages do you speak?
3: Well, daily, three, three languages. Okay,
1: so try visualize dog. Um, just imagine a whiteboard for a minute in front of you that you can write on, right? Visualize the word dog on it in English, then visualize the word in a different color, which is dog in Spanish and then visualizing another color, which is dog in Italian. Mm. So you can use this in any language, Mm. which is a big bonus.
3: Yeah, it's definitely interesting, because um, I work a lot with autistic people, and I've noticed that those who who have a second language at home, they do best spelling than monolingual children. And this is what I find quite interesting: how they function. Yeah. At the same time,
1: what autistic children normally, once they get the hang of, once they get taught this or they learn how to do it, they normally do very well because they like whole words. They don't like bits of words because bits of words have no meaning. So if you think of phonemes, they don't have a lot of meaning. The individual bits. But the whole word has a lot more meaning and also you can start them reading and spelling on objects so like ball and tree and chair and stuff like that so because autistic kids tend to be highly visual they are already going to the occipital lobe to look for their pictures and so adding words into it is much easier okay Any more follow-up questions? Yes, Tracy, are you trying to ask a question?
3: Yeah. Would you mind just
1: talking us through again the whole image process? Because I sort of got it, but
3: I'm not sure I got it, if you see what I mean, Um, in terms of the whole picturing the thing and putting the thing in front of it. Yeah,
1: okay, absolutely fine. Can I just say, um, don't forget, the, the video of the talk... The, not your interaction the video the other bit is up on my youtube channel at half past six tonight so you can always go back to it right so you do let's borrow teddy a minute okay so you you get teddy to imagine a dog right then sorry i haven't got my prompt here so you get him to imagine a dog and you go what color's the dog and what's the dog doing? Is he still or is he moving? Is he running around? what's he doing? and if he's running around the dog you've got to get teddy um grounded so that he's the and when he gets grounded, the images will stop moving around so he's now got a nice dog, which is a black and white dog with green colored feet and two ears and a tail any version of that you've got a good Good dog there. So then what you do is you write dog on a post-it. You watch where his eyes are and he should be looking up because that's where your visual field is. And you put, you can see where his eyes are looking. So I would put a post-it, whoops, in the middle between his eyes and where he's looking. And then I'd say, can you can you read that word? first of all, and then when I take it away, see that word on the side of the dog. And then spell it forwards, change the color of the letters and spell it in reverse order. I have study guides that will actually walk you through this on my website if you want to look at it in more detail because I've really given you an accelerated version there. But the the key thing, Tracy, is nobody, no children know that that's what they're heading for. That's what people who are good at literacy do. Which I find um, a bit of a civil right, to be quite honest. Like, why don't we tell them? Even if they can't do it, they know what they're heading for. And they will be able to do it. Kids can pick this up in half an hour. It's remarkable. So although it takes, um, it's, you know, it's much quicker. It takes a few minutes to teach people, but it's much quicker. I have people who are working in primary school who are teaching this now in parallel to um, uh, phonics. But they are also, there's another little trick here. They are also doing objects. Sorry about my dog, if you can hear it they're doing object words first so they are which is really important if you're in school you get into non object words much too young in my opinion because there if i say to you don't see an elephant who's now seen an elephant and is trying to rub it out you automatically go to that part of your brain to find your picture of an elephant even if i say don't see an elephant and so what you need to do is to, what, and uh, I started this by saying that this was for vi- people who were great visual learners, um, and so they've already got this skill. They've got fabulous pictures. The amount of kids I've, I've met, hundreds and thousands who have got amazing pictures, and nobody has told them to put words in them. It's as simple as that. Um, there's a question that quite often pops up is, when would you start? What age? And I would always say, start this as soon as they start doing words in, in reception year or before if they're doing it at home. Start encouraging them to see words as part of objects. I have, par- I have recommend to parents that they have post it stuck up all over the house, just like they do in preschool. So that they've got an object associated with a with a word, and then move them on to longer and longer words, and then you can move them on to words that haven't got any objects. Okay. Um, by the way, I did leave out the video. I've just realised when I was talking about numbers. Um, I don't know if anybody um, is teaching maths. Um, But when you get to Key Stage 1, there is an assumption from the people who train teachers for Key Stage 1 that children are already visualizing numbers. I was astounded when I went to a workshop by um, a guy in Hertfordshire who teaches our teachers. And I said, at the end of the session, I said, you're visualizing numbers, aren't you? And he went, yes, of course I am. And I said, but I've got news for you. We're not teaching our kids to visualise numbers, so they might not all be doing it. Some might have picked it up by um, happenstance, but a lot aren't. And he just looked at me and he put his hand up and he said, that's a learning difficulty, it's not my problem. And I have told that story many times because I was appalled. We have to teach kids when they're really young that they can visualise numbers. Really useful skill. So, Tracy, come on. So how would you do that then? Oh, very easy. Um, You can all do this. Picture the word dog. Right? Then write a number at the beginning of it so it now says two dogs. Got it? Now take the dog away. And so you've now got on a whiteboard the number two. And for little children, you might be picturing a dice so you might have five dots they could picture those they can picture counters for counting up they can do all the things that you're teaching who
3: if anybody's a primary teacher here they can do all of those things in their minds eye okay
1: So it's coming up to half past. Have we got any more last minute questions?
0: Oh, I have one. Um, Yes, Ola. When you said picture,
1: you mean picture in mind or picture like drawing? Picture in mind. Okay. Yeah. What I teach is um, something called mental images, which is the images you have in your mind. And you can, they've got, some people call it visualizing, some people call it picturing. Some people call it mental images. Uh, we, at one time, I used to call it. Um, I would say visual learning all the time. But the only problem with that is that teachers think they're already doing visual learning when they're showing pictures to students. But actually, that's visual teaching. That's not visual learning. So I then moved my terminology to being mental imagery. And people and teachers would go, "What's mental imagery?" And I go. Then I can explain it.
0: Okay? okay. Because I was wondering if it's helpful to show this uh, on the picture as well.
1: But... Yeah, I mean, for little kids, you can have a picture of a, um, a cat with cat written on the side of it. Don't, don't do the thing that you usually happens, which is you've got the word underneath or on top or around the other side of a card you want you want when they think of a cat, you want the word "cat" to pop up instantly for them, and it's if you've got it underneath the picture,
3: then you've got to hold two mental images together, which is more difficult. Paul has just popped in, do you want to ask a question
1: <laughs> You're on oh,
0: sorry, it was my headphones fell off. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions oh, but actually can I ask you um when i have a um, we have a two two languages' one or actually one language plus english uh which uh, our son prefers to use, and we're struggling now with um with reading uh, he's been at school for some time and now he just doesn't want to read at all and I was trying uh with the post-its around the house and I would like him to to learn. Um, our language, um, our native language as well as uh, English. But now as we're moving on to homeschooling, I don't know how to handle that.
1: Okay, so is he better in one language than the other? What's your other language? Polish. Okay, is he better in Polish than he is in English?
0: No, now he's better in English. Well, (laughs) with reading, he just doesn't want to read anymore since uh, he was forced at school.
1: Oh, okay. There is there is a few tricks about reading that I can give you. Um, Firstly, find something he might be interested in reading. Doesn't matter what it is, right? People never read things that they're not interested in, in my experience. Okay. See if you can find a book which has got the same word in it repeated several times. One of the ones I use is Scaredy's Grill. Okay and squirrel appears on almost every page in it. Okay, quite a difficult word, right? But it's it's you, you're making reading into a game. So I show him the word squirrel, okay? And I go, right, now, can you open the book and see how many squirrels you can find? And don't worry about reading the book, just get him to recognise the word squirrel, however many he can find. And it's a... Laughing, it's quite a pleasant sort of fun thing to do. That might I mean I had a child recently who was I hadn't seen before he got himself into year six and he couldn't read, so he's now 10. He couldn't read at all. Wouldn't I mean he would throw the book at you, he wouldn't do anything. And so I tried him on Scaredy's World. And we plowed through the book and he found all sorts of squirrels and lo and behold he started reading because he was having fun and he was relaxed and he just started re- and his mother and i looked at each other and went well that's interesting because mm. he was just having fun with it while and oh and the other thing is don't you, you know i said about what positions the books in don't look never look down at a book if you've got a child who hates reading don't look down at the book get it up here or even up here because all you're doing is putting them back into their misery. And they, when your eyes go down, you can, you can get, I feel miserable, I feel sad, I feel stupid.
3: If you look up, it won't be nearly as bad. I see. Thank you. Pleasure. There we go.
1: Well, we've done an hour. If anybody, you're welcome to carry on talking to me. I don't mind. <laughs> go on, Tracy. You're muted. I was just curious whether you're familiar with the way that some home-educated
3: kids learn to read at very variable ages and without being taught. Because I just, I just wondered whether you were familiar with that at all?
1: Or um, I, think, I personally think letting your child learn to read and spell on their own is really valuable. Um, right. I'll tell you the story of my son. Who is now 34? Uh, when he was a little lad, he hated reading. He was never going to read Biff and Chip. You know, it was just not going to happen. And we had his little book, and we were meant to write in how many pages he'd read a night. I mean, he would read, we'd be lucky if he read a paragraph. He hated it, and I didn't press it because I went, "This is not. This isn't the way this kid learns." And interestingly, I read um, John Holt's book uh, yeah. about letting your child work it out for themselves, which actually I read because he didn't speak when he was 18 months old either, because we tried correcting him. And there is a, a brilliant piece in John Holt's book that says, never could correct a child when they start to speak. Let them get them absolutely it's all perfect and so everybody in the house was told whatever he says it's perfect don't try and help him he'll work it out for himself and so we'd been doing nice things like you know when he pointed at a cat he we'd say it was and, and he called it a car he'd tell him it was a cat we weren't nasty about it but he wasn't going to be told anything um so when he got to reading this wasn't a complete surprise that we were going to go through this loop again So thinking of what John Holt's view of the world was, just leave him to it. And Dad, they're both football enthusiasts, and Dad is reading the back page of The Guardian, which is the football page, at the morning at breakfast. And so what happens next? My son starts doing exactly the same. God knows how much he actually understood of what he was reading, but he never looked back after that. And he is now an American... he lives in America, and he's a university professor. So it didn't do him any harm. But I would say if, if they get stuck, I mean, I think pointing out that you can picture words is a really useful skill, but I wouldn't go over the top. I would let them, if, you, if you're in a home-educating environment where you're letting them learn, I would let them learn. But I do think everybody should know is like the three people who said they could all picture words here and i do think every child should be told that
3: that's what people who are good at it do okay that's one of my campaigns that that one i was i'm
1: just so annoyed that people aren't told best kept secret so um and please help me because i've been trying to do this for 18 years now and I would like you to go and tell other people. Go and ask them about breathing, about picturing words. You will find out so much by just talking to your mates and do try and encourage them to um, look at um, visualising. It's normally, from, for most of the kids I work with who tend to be neurodivergent kids in one way or another, these, the, this skill, they've already got the visual skills. So all we're doing is teaching them how to use them for something else. Okay. Any last-minute questions? Do um, get in contact with me if you want to. Um, The um, it's um, I've lost the. Oh wait a minute! I've got a. No, I haven't. I've got the video there. Um, It's empoweringlearning.co.uk, and you can find me on Olive at empoweringlearning.co.uk. Okay. Right, thank you ever so much and um do get in contact with me. Please you could join me.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freedom to Learn podcast. For more information about our work, check out our website at uk, and find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.